afternoon. I'm Charles Lee, and this is the Berkeley Grok's Science Show. Coming up on today's program, we'll be taking a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. In addition, we'll be joined by Dr. Arthur Rosenfeld, who will talk about setting energy policy. And a little bit later in the program, Tyson Mao will join us to play the Grokatron 5000. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the world-famous Question of the Week, coming right up here on the Berkeley Grok's Science Show. Welcome back to the Berkeley Grok's Science Show. Well, energy issues continue to concern us all, and California's Energy Commissioner Dr. Arthur Rosenfeld sat down with our very own Frank Ling to discuss setting energy policies. Well, the price of gasoline has once again entered the public's mind as records are continually broken at the gas pumps. Equally important are the prices we pay for electricity and natural gas. Well, joining us today is a very special guest, uh, Dr. Arthur Rosenfeld, who's the California Energy Commissioner for our state. He is an emeritus professor of UC Berkeley, and he's also one of the chief scientists who organized the Energy Technology Division at Lawrence Berkeley National Labs. He has the distinction of being Enrico Fermi's last student, and last year was the winner of the Fermi Prize from the Department of Energy. Uh, Dr. Rosenfeld, thank you so much for joining us here today. Uh, glad to be here. And you're certainly a pioneer of energy efficiency, and uh, some of your work has actually led to California saving uh, many, many uh, gigawatt hours of electricity and uh, many terms of natural gas uh, since the 70s. Um, so where, where, where does the story begin? Uh, sure. Um, when the... Uh, first oil embargo came along in 1973. Um, it was quite clear that America just didn't have a clue as to uh, how to react to uh, an increase in price and a shortage of fuel. I didn't know much about energy at the time. I was doing particle physics, but I did know two things. I knew that uh, we were going to use up at least half of the world's supply of oil in my lifetime. I didn't know whether that was necessary or not. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think I also knew pretty clearly that per dollar of gross domestic product that our economic competitors, the Europeans, the Western Europeans, and the Japanese only used half as much energy per, per dollar as we did. And uh, I think I visited at least Western Europe enough to know that they were in no way freezing in the dark, that they had a fine standard of living, and uh, that uh, we ought to be able to uh, come down to their level, we come down to their levels of use, up to their levels of efficiency. So uh, what uh, a bunch of physicists did, physicists tend to be interested in in fundamental change. Mm -hmm. uh, what a bunch of physicists did, Frank, was to organize a summer study at Princeton University in the summer of 1974, the first summer after the embargo. Mm -hmm. And we uh, wrote a report, a book, in fact, the most successful book the Physical Society has ever published, called Energy for Efficiency from a Physics Perspective. And uh, what we pointed out in the automobiles chapter that we were at 14 miles per gallon, and the Europeans had smaller but perfectly good transportation with cars averaging 
28 miles per gallon, or maybe 27. Mm-hmm. And uh, in buildings in particular, um, we had uh, electricity and gas were pretty much dirt cheap in those days, and we had very little uh, understanding of how to design buildings efficiently. There were no public domain computer programs. There were no building or appliance standards. And um, it, it was it was pretty clear that there were many, many things we could do in the building sector. And I worked in the building sector because uh, it was pretty clear that Congress was uh, perfectly aware that automobiles run on gasoline and that uh, uh, they could follow the European lead and put in corporate automobile fuel economy standards, which got us from 14 to 28 miles per gallon over 10 years. Um, and industry uh, tends to have engineers who know about benefit-cost analysis, but buildings and homes in particular were a complete disaster. Um, they were built and sold on first cost uh, rather than uh, life cycle cost, mm-hmm. and that still tends to be something of a problem. Um, let me uh, mention then a few of the things that we did that were uh, pretty big successes. The first one was to uh, work on fluorescent lighting. These are the long tube lamps that are in the ceiling of every office in the country. Mm -hmm. Um, We realized that we could uh, make high-frequency ballasts do at least 20% more efficient. And out of that uh, successful development, which we got from money from the Department of Energy, uh, a total of $100,000, out of that development, came the realization by the manufacturers of uh, fluorescent lamps that they could make small ones. At high frequency, you can make a small lamp very efficient. And fluorescent lamps are four times more efficient than incandescent lamps. Uh, And uh, as you know, uh, compact fluorescent lamps have now replaced, in California, they've replaced uh, most of the lighting now comes from compact fluorescent lamps, both in homes where they're required in new kitchens and in the kitchens and uh, bathrooms of new buildings and in the hallways of multifamily buildings mm-hmm. and in commercial buildings where uh, the lobbies have uh, uh, recessed fixtures which are full of compact fluorescence instead of uh, the old-fashioned incandescence. The environmental uh, impact of just that change is quite an, a normal, quite an amazing. A uh, compact fluorescent lamp uh, lasts about 12,000 hours. So it replaces a series of about a dozen uh, incandescents, which last only 1,000 hours. I so see. it takes a lot of trips up the ladder. The first cost of the compact fluorescent, which now costs a few bucks, is less than the first cost of the dollars of the 12 incandescents. And when it comes to electricity savings, by the time the 12,000 hours are up, which is like three years in a commercial building or six years in your house, mm-hmm. uh, you save a whole barrel of oil back at the power plant, or a barrel of oil equivalent, <laughs> and uh, you save about $50 worth of electricity. And if you convert that barrel of oil into gallons equivalent of gasoline at 25 miles per gallon, you can put it in the family jalopy and drive from, uh, say, San Francisco to Denver. Well, if you have an efficient car like a Prius from San Francisco to Chicago. Mm-hmm. So uh, luckily those are taking over. And then uh, we went on to low emissivity windows. It's too bad that the the really clever name, which we call the heat mirror window, was already uh, taken by somebody as a trademark. 
but uh, those windows have now pretty much swept the world. Uh, they're uh, they're in the form of a uh, coating between double glazing, where it's protected from dust and cat's paws and fingerprints, mm -hmm. and uh, it allows tra the, uh, visible light to get through, but it reflects the near infrared, which is where all the heat, le which is whereby all the heat leaks out, and. Uh, uh, those windows in America now are saving the equivalent of uh, uh, at least two million barrels a day of uh, oil equivalent, uh, like uh, a million barrels a day of keeping heat into a house in the wintertime and about a million dollars a day of keeping air conditioning heat out of a house in the summertime. And uh, so that means that uh, they're doing as much good for the economy as the whole Prudhoe Bay Pipeline from Alaska, which only which you hit a maximum of two million barrels a day, which is now down to one million barrels a day, and that, that's really a good comparison because the windows last about twenty years, mm -hmm. and the pipe and Alaska lasted about twenty years, so probably fair. So those are some of the easy things we did in uh, in buildings, but we did we've uh, learned how to design buildings with optimal insulation, with uh, air conditioner efficiencies, which have gone up by a factor two in uh, 30 years. Uh, refrigerator use by appliance standards has come down to one quarter over 30 years. Uh, gas furnaces for heating the house have improved their efficiency by 50%, and uh, the savings are really quite staggering. I would like to make one more point about oh. all these savings that mm -hmm. I just mentioned from the standards. Sure. And that is that um, building standards and appliance standards uh, require that when you build new buildings or you sell new appliances, uh, you are up to the standards. But they all cal they're all calculated so that you get your money back out of saved utility bills in five years. Mm -hmm. Whereas, of course, if instead you build a power plant to, to service the less efficient appliance, you sure as heck don't get your money back in five years. It's more like a 40-year planning horizon. There's some people who take a cynical view that efficiency actually leads to greater consumption because now that um, we can afford to have more energy, we'll buy bigger homes and buy more electronics. Um, how do you um, counter these arguments? Well, uh, that's called the great uh, debate about uh, feedback. There, there is, of course, some of that. Uh, particularly, uh, the extreme example is uh, uh, we have two cars in the family. We have a, a Camry and a Prius, and the Prius gets better miles per gallon. So, of course, uh, uh, we put a lot more mileage on the Prius than we do on the Camry, but I don't think our fuel bill has gone up very much. Usually, uh, if you do studies of uh, take-back, uh, what you find is that uh, something like 10% of your uh, theoretical savings disappears into people using the car more or leaving the lights on more or building a bigger house. But um, if you double the efficiency of a car, people just don't have time to drive twice as far. And if you uh, double the efficiency of a refrigerator, it's so transparent people certainly don't use it more. Uh, they might they might buy a slightly larger one, mm -hmm. but in general, uh, the the thought that that people would actually use more energy instead of just a little more energy, I think, is uh, is absurd. Obviously, we're going to use a little more. Hey, thanks a lot. And that was Dr. Arthur Rosenfeld, the California Energy Commissioner. Dr. Rosenfeld will join us again in a later episode to talk about international trends in energy. 
and the economics of energy development. And you were just listening to Dr. Arthur Rosenfeld, California's Energy Commissioner, talking with our very own Frank Ling about setting energy policy. This is the Berkeley Grox Science Show you're listening to. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Tyson Mao will join us again to play the Grokatron 5000. So stay tuned. Well, Tyson Mao joined us to talk about solving the Rubik's Cube. This week, he's back. Okay, so welcome back. Uh, Mr. Mao has kindly agreed to join us on this week's episode of the Grokotron 5000, the computer formerly known as Deep Blue. Uh, Today's topic is solvable or unsolvable, and we have five subjects here. Um, So if any of these five subjects was a Rubik's Cube or, you know, some other... um, or analogous puzzle, uh, would they be solvable or not? Uh, so subject number one, uh, Yoda, what kind of puzzle is he? Uh, Yoda is a very... <laughs> Mysterious, yes. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think, how does Yoda go from, you know, one second he's walking with a cane, you know, hunched over, and then the next second he whips out a lightsaber and is completely kicking butt all over, jumping around doing flips, uh... That's definitely a puzzle for me, but I guess when you're a Jedi, you can do these things. Subject number two, uh, super pop star Michael Jackson. What kind of puzzle is he? Michael Jackson. Or isn't he? <laughs> the type of problem that Michael Jackson is is just, you know, trying to figure out what the heck he is thinking. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think most people out there have an understanding of logic and reason, and I think a lot of this training comes from the will to survive and just knowing that, you know, if you fall off a cliff, you die, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I have no idea what this man was thinking. It, trying to understand what his logic is, inviting little boys to his ranch. You know, we all made jokes about this when we were a long time ago, and then uh, all that stuff happened. And um, Yeah, kind of weird. Yeah. So the puzzle to Michael Jackson is figuring out what the heck he is thinking. Okay. Subject number three, um, cosmologist uh, Stephen Hawking's type of puzzle is he? Uh, Gosh. Well, actually, you know, Stephen Hawking spends a month out of each year at Caltech, Mm -hmm. and he recently uh, was given a chance to experience zero gravity, 
you know, I'm not really sure. Stephen Hawking is just a, a just normal person who, uh, you know, despite a disability, has accomplished great things. Unfortunately, his passion doesn't require him to move at all. I'm not really sure that there is much puzzle to him uh, besides that he is a brilliant man, and uh, what he's done is amazing. All right. Um, subject number four, um, TV show host Oprah Winfrey. Oprah Winfrey, how did she become the world's most powerful or world's most influential woman? To solve the puzzle of Oprah Winfrey, you know, just coming from her background, I think she grew up in, you know, Milwaukee or, you know, from a poor family or something along those lines and now is one of the most powerful women in the world, probably the most influential woman in the world. I'm kind of curious how she did it. It's amazing. All right, and subject number five, um... And actually, one of the biggest uh, mysteries to me, um, the President of the United States, George W. Bush. Regardless of any political affiliation or, you know, whatever your religious background is or your view on politics, I think it's safe to say George Bush is not the most intelligent man um, out there. Um, there are many different ways to define intelligence. Um, and intelligence is not solely based on your ability to solve math or verbal problems presented on an IQ test. But even if we want to go into something like, you know, emotional intelligence or things like that, uh, I'm willing to bet he's not the sharpest tool around. Okay. But maybe I'm misunderestimating him. I don't really know. All right, uh, Tyson, uh, I really appreciate your time, and uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Sure, thank you for having me. And you'll be uh, performing on May 19th at Union Square in San Francisco, right? Yeah, that's right. Union Square, Saturday, May 19th. Um, it's Taiwanese Heritage Week. Um, learn about the Taiwanese culture. It's going to be a great experience, and I'm glad to be there. Great. Uh, Mr. Mel, thank you so much. Thank you. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Rocks. Make sure you come again for more from the world of science and technology. I'm Franklin, and stay tuned for more music. Music